the effect of having a system that really is not designed to give us the outcomes we want are very similar. So we have a system where, you know, I work and I have done a lot of administration and teaching in areas around public health and maternal child health. And I can recite for you, I don't think it's that helpful to do so, but I can tell you there are big differences in maternal mortality uh, between black women and white women. Even when black women are middle class, there are big differences in infant mortality. There are big differences in life expectancy. Welcome to the World Beat Podcast. I am George Collins. It's uh, been quite a, quite a whirlwind of a year and a half, uh, wherever you are in the world. Um, it's not often that we get to talk about a conflict that infects uh, literally everybody on this planet at some point or another. I am, of course, talking about the coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19, however it is that you happen to know it by. And uh, are we out of the woods? Or are we not out of the woods? Well, that depends on who you talk to. The initial wave of vaccination uh, looked very promising. We now have the Delta variant. There are stirrings of Lambda on the southern U.S. border. There's all kinds of different ways to go here. And it's reignited, you know, especially here stateside, it's reignited a lot of conversations about U.S. healthcare. care. Um, we seem to have this discussion every few years, whether it be from a policy perspective or in the case of a crisis. And this has definitely blown it open in uh, a lot of ways. There's a lot to unpack here, and uh, we certainly can't do it all in one segment, but I think we can at least get some perspective. And joining me today to help us with that is Dr. Nancy Anderson, MD, MPH, a retired associate professor in the Department of Midwifery at Bastyr University, where she also served as the program director and core faculty of the new Maternal Child Health Systems Master's Program. She also spent 12 years in the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services, as well as five years working abroad in Mozambique. Um, and that's an experience we're definitely going to dive into uh, later on in the segment. She currently serves as a community physician member of a human subjects review board, and her past work has included a project on traditional healers in Senegal, as well as another one on barriers that women of color continue to experience entering the midwifery profession. Uh, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So um, we always like to start on WorldBeat with uh, a little bit of background uh, about the guest as a way just to understand exactly how they came to uh, where they ended up. And so, you know, where were you born and, um, you know, what, uh, what was that all like? I think I will start not with my birth, but with a birth before mine, because it, it will give a lot of context to who I am and who I became. So, uh, you know, this is a radio show, so I should say I'm black and biracial, and I, I walk through the world with both of those identities. My first contact with the failures of our healthcare system was not through anything having to do with my health, but had to do with my father's life. His mother immigrated from Jamaica and um, gave birth in New York City, which is where he was born and where I was born. 
um, at a time when, in fact, it was very hard for Black women to get good health care. And you could certainly argue that remains true today with respect to maternity care. But this would have been in 1927. She was in obstructed labor for hours and hours. And cesarean sections were available, but generally were not given to Black women because it was said that we were stretchier and we could stretch. Um, in the end, she had the baby pulled from her using a kind of forceps that's very long that we don't use much anymore, um, at least in part because it can cause damage um, to the spinal cord. The baby was born. Uh, they thought for some time that he had died um, because he didn't breathe. Um, he had a big laceration uh, around his neck and he was actually left for dead, but it was noticed that he was alive, he was, that he, he wouldn't stop crying. Uh, that person became my father. And I watched the results of the kind of birth his mother experienced uh, through my entire life. He subsequently and slowly and progressively uh, became disabled and became a physician himself, but eventually died as a consequence of, of his progressive disability. So if you wanna ask me how I became who I am today, I would say I'm a, a black woman who watched her black father die from um, the inadequate and racist medical system. And it had a huge effect on me. I'm sure it had something to do with why I became a physician. You know, people, come up with all kinds of reasons why they, why they end up doing the kind of work that they do. Certainly the fact that my father was a doctor had a lot to do with it. I, I had privilege in that sense because I was exposed to the medical context all the time. Just my mother was a nurse and they used all sorts of vocabulary at the dinner table and I knew all sorts of anatomy when I was a little girl. But watching... Uh, my father's ongoing and progressive disability uh, incapacitate him and eventually kill him had a lot to do with why I became a physician and, and the way I thought about healthcare in the United States, what I was aware of in terms of its inadequacies and what disparities were. And I, it, it was a long time before I really had the language for health disparity health inequity, birthing justice, all these words that we think about, these terms that we use now to describe the effect of systemic racism on life, well-being, and health um, in the communities of African descent. Um, but I had experienced them from a very young age. So maybe that's a good way to get started um, to bring us up to who I am today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, no doubt. And, um, and as, as you've said, I mean, in some ways, uh, um, not much has changed, it sounds like from from that time. And, um, and we will, we will certainly talk about that. And so you, um, you come up in uh, New York City, um, originally. Yes. And yes. what is, um, what, what are, what are the, the politics like at home? Um, I mean, you've talked about your, uh, your, your family being involved with medicine. But when when does the 
I, I guess at what age or at what point does um, your identity as someone of African descent really come into focus? You know, it's just, I, I, I'm trying to think about a, a, a point where it happened because my, my father was a rehab doc and he went to work at uh, Harlem Hospital and um, had a colleague, uh, Dr. Herbert Thornhill, and the two of them ran a rehab medicine program at uh, the hospital in the largest in the black community in New York City. So just seeing my father uh, do the kind of work that he did, I think um, helped me um, gain a sense of my own identity. And I was born in 1954. So, I mean, my parents' marriage wasn't legal in all states until I was 13. So I'm, that certainly had an effect on, on me and on my, my judgment of, of myself, both as somebody who was Black and also biracial. I have memories of, of um, just children, kids really, when they're little, do they really care? who you are categorically, probably not, but I have memories of children who were told by their parents that they couldn't play with me, they shouldn't talk to me. And that's just what it's like to grow up black in the United States. And certainly a biracial family before being biracial was anywhere cool. Those were just things I was aware of as a kid that race mattered. I, I lived in that country. So it's I think when I was very little, we lived at my grandmother's house and, you know, there were other people, relatives from Jamaica, et cetera, who lived there of every hue and color. And so I think like many very small children, I think my parents probably protected me pretty well. But then once you start going to school, it's different. How does that shift uh, later on when you attend Barnard College and um, Columbia University? Uh, if, if I recall uh, correctly, because yes. by that point, by that point, is that, is that like 1970s type range? Yes, that's 1970s. You know, I thought about saying something, well, Barnard was a school where there, again, there, there was certainly racism at Barnard. There was a very active uh, black women's organization there. There was a lot of awareness uh, in the African-American community and in other communities of color uh, within the university certainly among undergraduates, um, about uh, policy and politics. Um, I started school after the sort of major uprisings in the late 60s, but there were certainly some echoes of that still. And I thought about saying something about my medical school, but the truth is I was a student there so long ago so between 1976 and 1980, when I was there, I mean, the amount of just institutional racism that students and staff and patients of color had to cope with, I think was pretty appalling. But I give the school some credit, and I assume that it's changed a great deal since then. Certainly, I think the ethnic and racial makeup of, of the students there is at least somewhat different and in terms of faculty is very different. Um, my first year that summer, um, one of my student colleagues and I actually wrote a report together as our summer project 
on racism and sexism at our medical school. And it, it was just descriptive. And we described, you know, the sorts of things that, that the people we interviewed either as faculty said or as students experienced in terms of racism and sexism, what we would call now misogyny. Uh, it was real and it was, people didn't talk about triggering things then. You just kind of had to suck everything up. It was either take it or leave. It was not an easy experience. And there were some people, the other thing I need to say is that there were people we, faculty we worked with who cared a lot about us as students. It's just that if you ask me an institutional question, I would say the institution was rife with racism. Um, and there were always people who were nice through that. And we certainly had other student colleagues who cared about racism, misogyny, homophobia, which was also a big issue um, in professionalization. Um, and at the end of the four years I was there, I had, um, I had some friends uh, who I've kept forever because, because, because of what it was like. Um, I think what I would say, kind of jumping forward a little bit, is that what I've learned over the years, uh, as I somewhat as I was in public health school, uh, and a great deal since then, actually working in higher education with um, scholars that talk about systems and systems thinking, is that our system, our political system, that gave rise to our health system, that gives rise to a healthcare system, is designed to give us the outcomes that we have. So when we look at outcomes where, you know, uh, African-Americans, black people have very poor health outcomes, even when they're middle-class compared to say a similar, a white group of people, that is what our system has been designed to give us. Are there good, hardworking people of every ethnicity in our healthcare system? Certainly. But when the system is designed to have the outcomes that we have, you know, you end up in a situation where all the health professionals I know personally, professionally, people have taken care of me when I've been sick they're working their butts off and they're trying really hard to do a good job. But the truth is that the health system that we have has not really been designed to give us the outcomes that we all want. We want equity. We want everyone to be healthy. We want everyone to have the best conditions for well-being and long life. We don't have a system that is designed to give us that. And I mean, I've worked in a variety of contexts. I, I worked in Seattle uh, when I uh, was in pediatric training. I was in the National Health Service Corps uh, in Atlanta, very different place in terms of the class differences between people and the amount of poverty. But the effect of having a system that really is not designed to give us the outcomes we want are very similar. So we have a system where, you know, I work and I have done a lot of administration and teaching 
in areas around public health and maternal child health. And I can recite for you, I don't think it's that helpful to do so, but I can tell you there are big differences in maternal mortality uh, between black women and white women. Even when black women are middle-class, there are big differences in infant mortality. There are big differences in life expectancy. And I have come to see and to understand that in fact, I can give everybody advice. I can do a great workshop on, on how to overcome your hidden bias. But the fact is that we don't have a system set up for equity. Um, and, and I say that with humility. I don't say that to imply that I know everything or that I'm describing any particular people who are racist. The fact of the matter is that systemic racism undergirds the social system that we have. We talk about uh, determinants of health, you know, and we say, well, health isn't just about health care after all. Health has to do with uh, where you live, where you play, what your work is like, uh, what the physical environment is like. We talk about determinants of health, but even determinants of health are intermediaries. You have to reach back beyond the determinants of health and say, why? The four-year-old question, you know, the question every four-year-old asks, but why? Where did these determinants come from? And in fact, looking at our own history, we do, we did not, we were not our system was not designed to be equitable. Therefore, when we look at what we have today, we don't like it. And we try, you know, we're all treading water to make it better. But my strong belief is that we have to completely redesign many things in our social and political system in order to get a different health system a different set of, of determinants of health, a different kind of healthcare system. So that's kind of where I am now with the whole story of why are things so bad? And, you know, our health carefully, uh, you know, we, we began to have health insurance. We're different from Great Britain. We're different from Germany in terms of our histories. And, and when we started getting financing for healthcare. And little by little, more and more people get access to healthcare financing with Medicare, with Medicaid, to some extent with Social Security, and then we get some expansion of Medicaid. But, and I suppose soon we'll have some expansion of Medicare. But in a sense, these kinds of incremental changes mean that the huge changes that maybe we really need, changes in terms of access, for example, to uh, standard minimum incomes, some stuff we're getting now, access to childcare credits, um, you know, access to improvements in housing and improvements to our living context so that those of us who are impoverished, African-American, Native American, Latinx, that, that we're not surrounded by toxic chemicals all the time. We need all of these changes. 
to get healthier and to get equity, what we want. So, I mean, that's sort of from the system's point of view, that's kind of how I'm seeing it. Well, it's, a, it's definitely a sound analysis based on, you know, not only what I think we've figured out over the past year and a half, but even what other countries have um, uh, figured out as well. And um, I definitely want to uh, continue with that in the next segment. When we come back, please join us for part two of our discussion with Nancy Anderson on WorldBeat. <laughs> 